Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Joining me today on Dark Sky Conversations is Dr. Kelly Pendoli. Now, Kelly is an environmentalist and an ecologist. Is that correct, Kelly? Or should I hand this over to you and you can tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, no, that's correct. I'm, I'm an environmental scientist and I, um, I operate a, an environmental consultancy in Western Australia and we work for um, industry, um, helping them to manage their activities um, as and mitigate impacts primarily around marine turtles and light pollution areas. Mm-hmm. Okay. So w- how did you get to that? We'll, we'll, we'll come to what you're actually doing now, but how, okay. what was the course that set you on that um, path? 20-something uh, years ago, <laughs> um, I started working for a West Australian oil company called West Australian Petroleum um, based on Barrow Island in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Um, And as a marine environmental um, practitioner, I was responsible for looking after intertidal areas and and beaches, basically. And and I discovered that um, there were sea turtles nesting on the beaches of both those islands. And um, one day one of the engineers came to me and said, "We we want to modify our flare can you um, help us with that? And so we had to actually um, go back to the government um, to get permission to do that. And in order to get the permission, we had to collect a little more biological data on the impact of that flare on turtle hatchlings on the island. And Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know much about that at the time, so I went to the literature, which, you know, you had to go to a library back then (laughs) and find the journal and read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and started to gather a bit more information on it and um, out of that um, designed a whole monitoring program so that we could look at how those flare modifications might impact on the um, on the hatchling turtles. So that um, was fairly advanced, though, for a mining company to come to you and say, we want yeah. to modify this. So had something yeah. triggered them? Um, I think the issue is sea turtles and uh, light impacts on sea turtles is very well known, okay? So in 1911, a guy called Hooker published a paper on the impacts of light on sea turtle hatchlings. And so um, we know, and we've known for a long time, that there's an issue there with with managing marine turtles around areas with lighting. Um, And the original approvals for that whole development had included, you know, the need for managing the flare to protect the turtles there. Um, but, but you're right, it was. Back then, most oil companies or, you know, industry 
you know, we'd get their approvals and go, yeah, yeah, fine, let's just, you know, go ahead and do what we have to do. Mm. But this company did come and did say, you know, as, as and I was an employee of them, but they did say to me, what do we need to do to make this right, you know, to make sure we mm. don't impact on these turtles. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so, so what yeah, did- it was good. What did Hooker write in his report? What was his initial finding? He, he was looking at um, different coloured lights. So he had red light and white light. And basically he was able to prove for the first time that um, hatchlings, marine turtle hatchlings, were attracted to light. Red and white light. Before. Beg pardon? Red and white light? Um, primarily the white light. Okay. Um, mm. But... You know, from from um, subsequent studies over the years, um, uh, in the absence of any other colour light, hatchlings can see red as well. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah. So often I've heard of, well, of in fact, it was really the first uh, understanding I had of light pollution was was. Fred Watson saying, and the turtle is the poster child for light pollution. <laughs> uh, I, so what does that mean? Why why was it so? I mean, you've just said it was known for a long time, but what actually happens to a turtle when they've they're attracted by this white light? So if you back up a bit, um, sea turtles nest on sandy beaches. So they basically um, lay their eggs, lay, dig a, a nest in the sand, lay their eggs, um, which then incubate in the sand for about six weeks, two months. Um, and when the hatchlings are ready to emerge, they break out of the shells and they crawl up through the sand and they sit there below the surface until the temperature drops. Um, and once the temperature drops, or the sand drops, it's indicating to them it's safe to go when it's typically at night. And so as they emerge from that sandy nest, they're on a, a, a big, wide-open beach and in order to survive, they have to be able to reach the ocean as quickly as possible because on that beach you're exposed to predators and dehydration and things like that. And so as they emerge from the sand, they've got to find... They need cues to show them where to find that ocean quickly. And so what what we think happens is that as they emerge, they're scanning and they're looking for a low-light horizon. So it's got to be low relative to where they are mm-hmm. and just lighter than so it's the not, horizon. So it's not the... the the, the well-known or well-spoken about moon that, if, that the turtle's about. No. It's, it's no, mm. no, because if you think about it, you can be sitting on a beach and the moon's rising behind the beach. Mm-hmm. And so if hatchlings were being attracted to the moon mm. on its own, they could be running inland. So now they're integrating across about 180 degrees on their horizon, so big, low, broad area, um, and, and you know, integrating that whole area to find the direction to head in. But the other thing that they're doing, the other cue that they're using is that they are moving away from a tall, dark horizon, which is typically the dune or the tree line behind Mm -hmm. the beach. Mm -hmm. So so there's those two things. The tall, dark line behind them is repelling them. They're moving away from that, and they're being drawn to that low-light horizon that you typically get over the ocean. And when there's a moon, then that reflects well and it illuminates that whole horizon over the ocean. When there's no moon, you still have enough light from stars Mm. um, and things like that to just slightly, slightly illuminate the ocean Mm. so that that's still going to be um, an attractive cue for them. Can I ask, uh, this is my complete ignorance around turtles, are there seasons for turtle hatchlings? Yes. Mm. So 
Turtles have a seasonal peak for nesting. So typically um, it's a summer peak. Um, so greens in Australia, we have green turtles, uh, flatbacks, hawksbills, loggerheads um, that nest in these sort of the, sort of the Pilbara region, uh, Queensland as well. Um, and they, they have a peak between about, well, hawksbills will start nesting in October um, and the greens and the flatbacks start nesting sort of around November and then they have a peak over the summer season um, and stop, finish, um, start to ease off on their nesting in sort of February, March. Okay. Um, flatbacks are a bit sooner. But basically it's over those sort of three or four months of summer when the bulk of the females will come in to nest. And so the hatchling emergence period is going to be about six weeks after that. And so, you know, for, for greens and flatbacks, that's sort of March, April. So February, March, April is when you expect to see most of your hatchlings. Mm. Hawksbills have a more diffuse sort of nesting. They don't have as big a peak. Um, and so, um, you know, you might see hawksbills extending through most of the summer season um, emerging. Mm -hmm. No, I just had a, a bit of a, a thought running through my head then was I was talking with Ken Wishaw on one of our other podcasts and he mentioned that one of his most, um, his deepest memory of being in, in a dark sky place was actually realising that a shadow was cast by the Milky Way. And I was thinking, yes. uh, and that's actually known as the Bordel scale. So if you, you can tell how good a yes. night scale, uh, night sky is by how much how much light, natural light you're getting from the, the heavens above. And yes. I was just thinking, at that time of the year, that's also when the Milky Way is overhead. But of course, there's more factors than that. Um, it's yes. obviously the, 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 the temperature of the sand and everything else. But uh, yeah, I, I guess it all works together. Hmm. Yeah. So going back to that flare, did they mitigate that problem? Yes. So, so the, the, the main problem for them was an engineering problem. The, um, the flare had been built with insulation inside that um, every time a cyclone came by, it got wet and it, it fell off. And so um, the engineers designing it hadn't accounted for cyclones. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they actually ended up having to um, build a different style of flare that didn't have that lining in it, and, and so they were able to do that successfully. And that was 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So where are we now? Let's fast forward 20 years. Where are we now with turtle habitats and mitigating light pollution from their natural habitat? It's... I guess that's an interesting question. So in terms of industry who have been um, aware of and expected to manage their lighting um, around sea turtle issues for over 20 years, they're, they're pretty much on top of that. So um, that's something that's done as a matter of everyday business. Um, where we've found a bit of a gap has been more around... Um, urban and suburban commercial lighting um, mm. from, you know, street lighting and, and towns and things like that. And that hasn't been managed so well and hasn't been recognised as something that needs to be managed to protect sea turtles. So we don't have such an issue of it in WA. There's only a few, like Port Hedland and Broome are a couple of towns that have turtles nesting nearby, but it's a much bigger issue in Queensland where mm. the entire coast is, is developed and the entire coast has some level of turtle nesting 
Um, and so that's just recently started to become not just recognised but managed or um, dealt with a bit more um, carefully uh, in Queensland. So, and what does that entail? What 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 are the management techniques? So so what 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 we're looking at there is, um, you know, how do you build a building that's that's got you know. It's got turtle-aware lighting. So I don't like to use turtle-friendly because there's no such thing as a turtle-friendly light. They can see all of them. <laughs> mm. um, so it's, it's building and designing the lighting designed for a building that reduces all extraneous lighting, that minimises the amount of light that escapes from that building. So things like... Um, and we've recently just worked on a project with a development in, in, in um, Queensland where... We put in place things like um, you know, lighting on balconies can only be used in a certain position so that they, they don't shine, shine outwards and the lighting can only be turned on um, at a certain time of night and after, you know, say, 10 o'clock at night, the lights are just automatically switched off for the entire building so that the tenants can't even turn the lights on on their balcony. And, um, and I imagine know, we- that would be more restrictive around hatchling seasons as well. It yeah. will, and so that's mm. part of that is to put, you know, um, um, timing in place or seasonal um, curfews in place for things like that. So, um, so yeah, it's it's like looking at, you know, how you can just reduce your know, outdoor lighting as well. You know, do you need lots of tall, bright lights in the parking area of a apartment building or not? And and usually you don't. And a consi- and a constant. Bright white light, you, yeah. you sensors, sensors and, and technology are our friend with that, really. Uh, That's right, motion yeah. sensors and, mm. and curfews and colour. So, you know, we even looked at, we went so far as to recommend the sorts of light fittings that could be used inside the apartments um, because that light shines out through the windows and then put tinting on the windows so that it cuts down on the amount of light escaping. So... Mm. So, and I, I know um, you're aware of the project going up at Bundaberg uh, with the what is it, the Prince Charles Foundation and Walt Disney. That's been an interesting. I don't know a lot of detail about it, but certainly from a tourism perspective, it's been an interesting collaboration to have. Oh, and Greenfleet as well involved. Yeah. So three corporations coming together to to look at how they can manage that site and. Uh, I don't know how effective that's going to be or is being. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or um, yeah, I guess I mean that that site, you know, Monrepo, um, has been studied and protected biologically by um, Dr. Cole Limpus for over fifty years now. So um, you know, he's he's built up. Uh, the, the research program there and, and worked really hard to protect it. Um, it. It's been nice to see him getting support from these other groups these mm. last few years um, mm. after doing that on his own for so long. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the state government's getting involved there as well. So it's, it's a whole, you know, group of people uh, are working together to now help manage the lighting around that very important rookery. Um, so while Cole's protected the, the scientific value of it, now everyone else is sort of standing up and working towards making sure that the development that's just growing up and down that entire coast mm-hmm. doesn't start to impact on 
the, the research value of that and conservation value of that rookery. Um, so there is a, um, a program in place right now to develop and install a um, network of sky glow sensors that will be used to create a, a real-time um, sky glow heat map over that entire area so that local people can go online and have a look and see how bright mm. the sky is in their particular mm. location mm -hmm. and, and then see how that relates to the location of that rookery um, and whether they might, their area might be having an impact on that rookery. So it's a huge That's PR mm. and educational mm. value to this program. And it's the first time it's ever been done. It's hugely mm. exciting. Um, well, it's great. I can imagine kids and, and the whole movement of citizen science just gets yeah. everybody involved in, in projects. And, yeah. and I guess it goes back to Fred's comment that the, the turtle is the pin-up child for light yeah, pollution, yeah. really. Yeah. 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 So let's talk a little bit about the technology. I am aware that you've been involved with, well, creating different techniques to measure light pollution. And, in fact, probably the, the question before is how do we measure light pollution and what do you use to help you in the, in the field? Uh, so this is this has been the big issue all these years. Typically, light is measured using commercial equipment, so lux meters and spectrometers and things like that. Um, and the problem we have as biologists is that that commercial equipment is all built and calibrated to the sensitivity of the human eye. And the sensitivity of the human eye to light is very different to what a sea turtle can see. So, so the, the, the region of sensitivity you know, for the human eyes is based around sort of that green-yellow part of the spectrum. Mm. Um, and the equipment used to measure that light is very insensitive to the, the ends of it, so the short wavelength blue and the long wavelength red light. And so when you measure light with a lux meter or a spectrometer, you're actually not measuring much of that blue or red light. And it's that blue light that is most disruptive to the hatchlings. It's a blue light and white light that will attract them most strongly. And so if we're out Why? there measuring light with the commercial equipment, we're not actually mm. measuring the light that's, mm. that's the biggest problem for them. So what we've had to do is try and develop equipment that can capture those ends of the spectrum, you know, and, and specifically the blue light. And over the last 20-something years, I have experimented with everything that you can imagine <laughs> to do that. Mm. And, um, you know, always had a uh, – called the geek squad at, at work. <laughs> always had some, you know, astrophysicist. Do you have a uniform? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so astrophysicists or, you know, um, uh, physicists, engineers, whatever, you know, lots of different types over the years to help – develop equipment um, and so about nine years ago um, I, I was working with the technician from the Perth, Astron um, Perth Observatory and he came to me one day and said look there's this, this you know astronomy cameras 
that would be used, you know, really useful. Let's try that. So I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. How much? <laughs> Let's buy yeah, one. He had ship them out from America. And, um, and so he helped build this whole system that would allow me to take this equipment to the field because the problem is you've got to have power for it and you've got to have, like, um, you know, a, a, mm. a laptop to collect the data and it's got to be go sit on a beach with turtles and <laughs> rain. Sand. And, you know, yeah. Oh, the sand, yeah. incredible. Mm. So I ended up with two big nelly bins full of gear um, but, you know, for the first time, you know, we were measuring sky glow using these cameras. Um, and so over the years, you know, there were some limitations with that. You know, you, you couldn't, um, you know, turtles would knock them over and mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the images were attenuated. They weren't full 360. But, um, but a, a year or so after we started building this, a publication came out from Europe by Cinzano using the same thing, the same equipment, the same technique. And so we knew when we saw that we were on the right track. It was really exciting. Mm. It was disappointing someone had beat us to it, but it was really exciting that we were on the right track. And so over the years, various members but of Chinzano my Chinzano was using it for cities, wasn't he? He wasn't using it for biological no, purposes. No, he wasn't using it yeah. for biological mm. purposes, mm. no. Mm. So... It, and really, it's how you process the data from those images that allows you to capture that biologically meaningful light. Um, but so over the years, we we sort of you know refined that camera equipment, you know, to the point where we've got a little black box with a switch on it. Now we can just drop on the beach and switch it on and walk away. Mm. Um, and then the data we get from that was there's there is some software out there that's been developed to process it, but. Um, it, it actually doesn't capture that those ends of the spectrum either. But you can do that using traditional um, astronomical techniques to you know quantify um, that that short wavelength blue light. So, and so, does, so are you now getting all the information that you need to know how turtles are being affected? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. We are. We we. Um, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just want to go back to because you you said a couple of times, especially blue light. So, what, as a biologist, what do you think? What do you know or theorize? Why blue light? Why is it specifically blue light that's that's triggering these turtles into maladaptive behaviors? Um, so, this this sensitivity to short wavelength blue light is pretty common across not not only across all species of turtles but all species of everything so if you look at all the collation of all the studies on um you know insects and birds and you know reptiles and mammals um, and look at their response to light across the entire spectrum the one commonality amongst all of that is the sensitivity to short wavelength blue light and it's mm-hmm. amazing when you start to put it all together. So everything on Earth is adapted to that, um, being sensitive to that, that, that short wavelength light. Um, so is that because think, it's closest to the sun? Well, I, I mean, a different species. So, it, you know, how you respond to that light ecologically depends on are you, a, um, you know, someone that needs to see light at night or in the mm. daytime? Mm. Um, is it use of foraging? Is it, you know, behavioural response? Is it physiological? There's all sorts of factors in there. Um, but I, I sort of feel like with the blue light, um, it's at night, it's very visible. So at night, the vision in, in a typical eye um, becomes Human more sensitive. Eye. It becomes more sensitive to short wavelength light 
when the rods, so you have cone vision and rod vision, cones in the eyes see colour. Rods, uh, and, and that is that high intensity light. The rods um, detect only in black and white, and that's that very low intensity light. So at night, when you're typically in a naturally illuminated beach, you don't have much light, and what's there is very dim. So your starlight and even your moonlight's fairly dim, and so the eye is is most sensitive to that short wavelength light under those conditions, and so it's going to see the blue light better in those dim mm, dim see. conditions mm. than than um, the other colours of light. So where are we at now? Um, you mentioned Queensland's very active in this, but is there a federal project to help the marine environment? Yeah. So um, uh, last year, uh, the Department of Energy and Environment um, put out a tender to um, have some light pollution guidelines for wildlife produced. And this has come out of the Commonwealth or the National Turtle Recovery Plan, um, which identified light as having you know, one of the major impacts on turtles. And so um, the Commonwealth Government DM Migratory Species Unit um, awarded me basically a, a tender contract to write these guidelines. Um, and we have, at their direction, included um, sea turtles but also um, migratory shorebirds and sea and um, seabirds because these are the three main groups under the Environmental Protection and Conservation of Biodiversity Act that they're responsible for protecting. And so we've drafted these guidelines up to basically increase the awareness of anyone that is producing light in Australia um, around the issue of how their light, regardless of its street lights or port lighting or defence lighting or airport lighting or whatever mm. it is, how their light might impact on shearwaters, marine turtles, um, you know, foraging um, shorebirds, um, because a lot of people aren't aware of it. They don't even think about it. And no. um, mm. what we wanted was it's not, they're not regulation, they're guidelines, and it's to, to basically give these species a seat at the table to make people... <laughs> aware that they need to think about these animals that can't speak for themselves, you know, and they get birds or shearwater is not going to fly into an engineer's office and say, you know, hey, mate, you know, don't forget <laughs> I'm out here nesting. Yeah. <laughs> you Can need I have to the make lights sure you... off, please? Yeah. Yeah, they turn yeah. the lights out. So so we're doing that with these guidelines and they're, they're with the Commonwealth Government for um, um, they're finalising the draft now and, and um, hopefully um, after the election because they're in shutdown now, they can't release any policy, um, they can be released uh, later on this year. And, and we're hoping that, um, you know, things like councils who traditionally haven't really um, addressed EPBC Act species very often, um, you know, will, will become aware that this is something they need to think about and can start to deal with it. So the intent is not that... Everyone has to assess projects and, you know, get approval from the Commonwealth Government. The last thing they want is, you know, 100 projects being referred to them. But, but what we want is people to be able to understand how they might be impacting on these species and to manage their own impacts themselves so that it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be dealt with by anybody else. Um, and we've also made they're not prescriptive because... Um, 
you know, as I keep telling engineers, you know, we can't give you prescriptive limits because biology is fluffy. It's really <laughs> hard to set limits for every condition that would be safe for every species. And so these are outcome-based. We're, we're teaching people about doing a risk assessment, doing an impact assessment of how your project might impact on this species, and then coming up with mitigation measures to reduce and manage that impact. Um, and then go back and look at that afterwards, do audits and do that whole cycle of, of check, review, fix, um, so that you can manage your own impact without having to have regulators involved at all. So that, that's our dream for these guidelines. <laughs> so. It sounds very exciting, and I actually can't wait to see them being released and, and having an opportunity to talk about it with, yeah. with various communities. Yeah. Well, I've been working 30 years towards these guidelines. It's, it's been, <laughs> yeah, life. Well, well done. Life well done for objective. hanging in there. <laughs> yeah. So in that 30 years, Kelly, I've, I'm, we're going to wrap it up, but so in that 30 years, have you got a particular moment where you've been in a nighttime environment that just stands out in your mind? Oh, man. You know, it's funny, I do, <laughs> and it's not anything to do with turtles. It, it was basically, I, I grew up on Norfolk Island um, in the South Pacific, and it was, it was standing on top of the mountain on Norfolk Island one night, and they were seeing so many stars overhead that I could not put a pin between them. Oh, wow. Staggering. <laughs> you talk about mm. shadow. Um, you know, you could almost read a book under the starlight. And I, I, to this day, I still remember that. I'm going to leave it there. But, uh, and we haven't even touched on your work with the International Dark Sky Association or your involvement with the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance. But uh, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to chat again. But uh, thank you very much, Kelly. Thank you. That's all right. Thank you, Marnie. That's it for our Dark Sky conversation today. But if you have any questions or would like to tap into some of Kelly's knowledge, please send us an email. You can do so at podcast at darkskytraveller.com.au. Thanks again. Lights out. <laughs>